We've lost soft power all around the world, but China hasn't picked up because they've been pretty inept in their diplomacy. It is the week of September 14th, and welcome to episode 42 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, Senior Fellow at NSI. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with David Dollar, Senior Fellow in the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution, and formerly the U.S. Treasury Department's Economic and Financial Emissary to China. Prior to his joining the Treasury Department, David worked 20 years for the World Bank, most recently as Country Director for China and Mongolia. Previous assignments included South Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Bangladesh, and India. David, thanks for joining us. Great to be here with you. So I thought we'd start by talking about trade deficits generally and the Trump administration. The president campaigned on trade deficits. He's very upset that we're buying more things from other countries than they're buying from us. The president said during the campaign that Washington and career politicians had betrayed the American people and given away the store by allowing these other countries to sell us more things than we were buying from them. But as you look at the trade numbers, in the last two years, we have had trade deficits with the rest of the world of $854 billion, that was 2019, and $872 billion, that was 2018. Those are the two highest trade deficits on record. In other words, the president who campaigned against trade deficits has actually produced the largest ones in American history. I've been kind of tracking this issue for a while and kind of wondering why the president isn't called out on his, by his own standard. What's your take on those numbers and, and President Trump's approach to trade? So you're completely right about the numbers. Uh, the overall U.S. trade deficit keeps going up. I would say you know, there's really two problems with President Trump's approach. First, I don't consider the trade deficit to be a big problem. It's not an indication of who's winning, who's losing. The fact that the U.S. has an overall trade deficit means that we're borrowing from the rest of the world. And a key question is, what are we doing with that? And how much is that relative to our economy? Back before the global financial crisis, the U.S. deficit got up above 7% of GDP. That was worrying because you know, that's a level of borrowing that's hard to sustain. And so there's going to be some kind of reckoning in the future. And then that happened with the global financial crisis. But since then, our deficit has been much smaller as a share of our economy, about 3%. And that's not really a big problem. So I think first, the president was wrong to make a big issue about it, but also wrong to think of it as some kind of scorecard between the United States and other countries. Now, the second point you make, which is valid, is that if you accept his approach, he's basically failed to bring down the trade deficit because the U.S. trade deficit keeps rising. It's not a surprise to me because it's not a scorecard about who's cheating or who's treating us badly. It reflects macroeconomic policies. In particular, in the last few years, when we cut taxes very dramatically uh, in 2017, cut taxes for corporations and rich people and at the same time, we also increased spending. So the U.S. fiscal deficit went up. The budget deficit went up very dramatically. That naturally encourages more borrowing from abroad. So where we are is pretty much the result of the U.S. macro policies. And then a point that's a little bit subtle and maybe hard to get across to people, in general, tariffs are not going to affect this in the way you might think. 
so, so president imposes a large tariff against imports from China, we naturally start importing somewhat less from China. You might think that would reduce the U.S. trade deficit, uh, but that's a very partial way of thinking. What happened is we started importing more from Vietnam and other countries, and we also export less because of those tariffs. Uh, so tariffs in general are not going to bring down your trade deficit. If you're worried about it, you really have to use macroeconomic policies. We, we'd have to raise taxes in particular, which I would definitely not encourage us to do in the middle of this COVID recession. And given the, the complexities of global trade these days, where there are uh, supply chains that go across multiple countries before a final product is purchased, talk about the impact that these tariffs, the U.S. tariffs on Chinese products have actually had and how it has, has not really meant a diminution in economic activity with China per se. Global value chains are a the good reason why this has not worked out the way the president thought it would. Uh, I think even before we had these complex value chains, tariffs were not going to be an effective way to bring down a deficit. But now with complicated value chains, it's, it's really a bad approach. So what's happened specifically, because we've targeted these tariffs at imports from China, we're taxing about half of our imports from China at 25%. And so that does have some effect on value chains. We've seen some labor-intensive assembly shift out of China to Vietnam, Indonesia, Mexico. All those countries have lower wages than China. So some of that was happening even before the tariffs, but then the tariffs encourage it. But the Chinese involvement in value change is not just that final labor-intensive assembly. China has moved into the middle of a lot of value chains, producing medium technology components and machinery. So what you see in the data is China's exports to Vietnam and other developing countries have gone up rapidly. They're sending them machinery and components. China's exports to the U.S. have gone down a little bit, not as much as you might think, but they've gone down a little bit. Uh, but meanwhile, the U.S. is importing more from those other countries. So if you think about this kind of triangular trade, an economist would say, well, nothing real has happened here. Uh, China's exports, their share of world exports are at a new high this year, so they haven't really been hurt very much. The U.S. is importing more than ever before, and our trade deficit, as we discussed, is bigger. Uh, it's a little bit of a boon for Vietnam, Indonesia, Mexico, because it speeds up a process that was going to happen anyway. Uh, but it's not particularly important development in international trade. It's really just a lot of smoke and mirrors. How do you, as an economist who understands this kind of complex algorithm behind global trade, explain the impact of the, the president's simplistic explanations of his trade policy in a way that really doesn't make any sense and isn't going to lead to the outcome that he asserts it would lead to. How do you, how do you as, a, as a genuine expert on these complexities, talk about it in public in a way that you think people might be able to digest? Well, I think it's important to recognize that there are real problems in the American labor market that started long before this COVID-19 recession. So it's true that a lot of manufacturing jobs have disappeared in the United States, and that's primarily because of productivity growth. American manufacturing is extremely mechanized. It's full of robots, to be perfectly frank. Uh, and then trade has contributed to that. So you've definitely had 
a decline in manufacturing employment, and you haven't seen that replaced by other good jobs. So we definitely have a, a problem, and a simple way to think about it is there are about 60 million workers in America who have no more than high school education. Or I shouldn't say workers, I should say there are about 60 million adults who have no more than high school education. And we've reached a point where only half of them are employed. And there are a lot of factors going on there, but I think a key one is that it's hard to find a good job with a decent wage and benefits. And trade is a convenient scapegoat, you know? So you say, you know, I'm gonna beat up on the Chinese and reduce the trade deficit. It doesn't actually generate a lot of jobs, but it makes people feel the government's doing something. And the alternative would be to do the hard work of trying to make more different types of jobs, good jobs in the sense of livable wages, benefits, et cetera. So I think that this, this whole issue, you know, it's not irrational that people are feeling that globalization is not working for America. There's a big slice of workers who are really not benefiting. But then the question is, what's the pragmatic approach? What's going to be an effective approach to helping them? So far, the trade war with China hasn't done anything for them. Talk about, David, if you if you would, uh, for a little bit on the Belt and Road Initiative or the One Belt, One Road Initiative that, that China's embarked on the last few years, essentially a uh, what we might call a foreign assistance program where China is starting to spend its currency reserves in countries in its neighborhood in Africa, even in uh, parts of Western Europe. It's got excess capital. It's pushing that money out to other countries where it's building uh, infrastructure, usually with Chinese workers. They're, they're calling this their assistance program. They're trying to link it to their diplomatic efforts to promote Chinese interests around the globe. How do you think of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, as, it's, as it's currently structured in, from China? First, it's really hard to get good information on it. The Chinese are not very transparent about reporting what are the projects, what are the loans behind it, the terms, how many Chinese workers involved, et cetera. So there's a certain amount of research on this, but there's a lot that's unknown. I think your instinct is right that China has excess savings and they have excess capacity in construction and backward linkages to steel and other sectors. And so in some ways, this is a you know, convenient for the Chinese economy you know, to be exporting more of its construction services, steel machinery, these kinds of things. But on the other side of the ledger, remember most developing countries have terrible shortfalls of infrastructure. In, particularly in Africa, you have a lot of countries with very poor coverage in terms of power supply. You have very poor transport networks, making it hard to connect to markets. So I see this as potentially a win-win, uh, but I emphasize potentially uh, because, as I said, it lacks transparency, so it's hard to know. Uh, but certainly some reports are definitely worrying. The Chinese worker issue, it's important in a few countries. But I think we should recognize that Latin America, for example, is borrowing a lot from China and they're not accepting Chinese workers. Uh, some of the nearby Asian countries like Indonesia, you know, they're not taking in Chinese workers. So I think it's important in some countries, particularly in Africa, uh, but it's a little bit exaggerated as a global phenomenon. More worrying is that to the extent we find out about the terms, usually these are commercial loans. You, know, you might, interest rate might be LIBOR 
which is the floating U.S. dollar interest rate, plus 350 basis points, something like that. Uh, relatively cheap money for developing countries, but still carrying a significant service burden. And in the wake of this coronavirus recession, we're seeing a lot of developing countries with debt problems now, and they owe a lot of that to China. Uh, and so I think to really turn this program into something beneficial, you're going to need more generous terms from China with some debt forgiveness, more transparency, probably fewer Chinese workers in, in many important countries. So it, it's potentially something beneficial. I don't think we should make it out as completely sinister, uh, but it definitely has some weaknesses and problems. From a foreign policy or national security standpoint, there's concern that when, when China gets involved in developing countries through the Belt and Road Initiative or, or other projects, that it's kind of subverting Western values of rule of law, of corrupt anti-corruption activities, democracy, those kinds of things. Is there a way that the West, led by the United States, could collaborate with China, but bringing China into alignment with more, more with our values so that when we try to promote those values in developing countries, we're not, we're not thwarted by these mercantilist approaches from Beijing. I think it's realistic to get China to fall in line with what I think of as economic and financial norms. So, you know, I would say those norms include things like competitive bidding. So you want to get best price for a particular project, uh, reasonable terms, poor countries can't pay commercial interest rates, uh, controlling this whole issue of Chinese workers. So I think establishing some norms uh, around the economic financial dimension, that's realistic. You're not going to get China to sign up to agree uh, that they're only going to provide support to, dem to uh, democratic countries. And if you're thinking about our values around democracy and human rights, the Chinese program is everywhere. So they're in some states like Iran and Venezuela that have very poor human rights conditions. Uh, but they're also lending money to Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia. These are all pretty well-functioning democracies. So I think the Chinese are pretty indifferent to the politics and the human rights. Uh, and what that means is we overlap with them in a lot of countries. You know, there are a lot of African countries that are in some sense allies of the US or borrowing a lot of money from China because they see it as in their economic interest. And then you've got those pariah states. You know, We don't have anything to do, but we're trying to isolate Iran, of course, and Venezuela. Uh, and China is just doing business with everybody. I think it's going to be very hard to get them to change that practice. How should the U.S. engage with, with Beijing to come to a new understanding of a collaboration in the developing world? And perhaps we're not able to agree on everything. Perhaps China will continue to want to uh, have a vigorous economic relationship with Iran and Venezuela. But in other places, is there... Should we be thinking about a new, a new Bretton Woods arrangement, a new approach to multilateral institutions? It does seem like some of, and I don't mean to disparage anyone who's working very hard on these issues or anything, but these, a lot of these institutions were created at the beginning of the Cold War. They may be antiquated. We may need a, a refreshed approach. How would you, if you were, if you were king for a day here in Washington, how, how would you structure 
a, a different engagement with China. If I were king for a day, I would try to reform the main international economic institutions, which would be the IMF, the World Trade Organization, and the World Bank. I would structure that around an agreement between the U.S. and China. Other countries are important as well, but these are the two overwhelmingly largest economies in the world, the U.S. and China. So we need an agreement about updating these institutions and Frankly, we're going to have to accept that China gets more weight in these institutions. And it's not going to be easy, but this COVID crisis may really provide the best opportunity. Quite a few developing countries are really in debt trouble right now. Most China is the biggest official creditor to those countries. So this is a moment where it's in China's interest to cooperate with the IMF. There's also the Paris Club. It's not as important an institution as the others I mentioned, but it's basically a club of official creditors. So when a country cannot pay its debt, basically the Paris Club tries to work out a fair agreement among the creditors. It's in China's interest to play ball with these institutions. And it's in our interest to work hard to pull them in as full members. IMF, World Bank, these are shareholding institutions. China should be the number two shareholder. You know, that, that's their position in the world economy. And if we can't accept giving that kind of role to China, then it's going to be very hard to have a single set of global institutions. The risk for me as an economist is that the world divides into a China block and a U.S. block. And that's going to be inefficient for all of us. It's going to create a bad environment for development. And it's really hard to see how that doesn't end in conflict. David, you've been a China watcher for, for a long time, uh, relatively speaking, and, and watching it pretty closely. Do you think that under Xi Jinping, that this kind of coming together between the U.S. and China is possible? Or do we have to wait for a, a different approach from the Chinese government? I don't think we can wait. Uh, Xi Jinping is probably going to be the number one person in China for uh, you know, at least seven more years or so. Uh, so I would hate to see us wait. I do think the combination of Xi Jinping and Donald Trump has been somewhat unfortunate uh, in that it's, it, it's really hard to get much communication and progress. Uh, if you had a President Biden it's not going to change things 180 degrees. You're still going to have to deal with Xi Jinping. Uh, but there are a lot of different stakeholders in China that are important now. Take an issue like climate change. I mean, there's a growing concern in China about what's happening with the weather, sea level rise. Their main cities are city like Shanghai. That's going to be underwater in 30 years. Uh, so the Chinese, I think, are more and more aware of the importance of global issues like climate change. And I think if we, we had approached them and we did the Paris Accord together, then the U.S. pulled out. You know, I think if we approach them about strengthening that, because frankly, both China and the U.S. have to make bigger commitments in terms of carbon reduction. Uh, and there are other global issues. I would, I would start with working on the global issues. We talked a little bit already about what's happening with developing countries and the need for debt relief and reshaping Belt and Road. I would approach China on the global issues where we have some common interests uh, and then hope that building some relationship there, we can move on, deal with some of the other thorny things like our trade relationship and the South China Sea. And uh, you know, we're going to 
continue to speak out about human rights issues in China. There's no question about that. It's going to be hard to get China to change, but we should be honest about our views on that. Aside from the, the climate change issue where we, we may in fact have similar interests, how else could American policymakers reach out to moderates or reformers in China, either in the economic sphere, in the Chinese Communist Party itself, perhaps in both? How can, how can we talk to different voices and maybe enhance their stature in, in the Chinese political ecosystem? Right. We were doing a lot of that. You know, we had a lot of academic exchanges and research collaborations, you know, in, in my own small little world. I recently put out a book called China 2049, uh, written together with some Brookings economists, but together with Chinese economists from Peking University. We, we agreed on a lot of things. I think a lot of their economists you know, understand that some of the things that we don't like, like poor protection of intellectual property rights, for example, that's really going to hold back Chinese innovation. You know, so w we want it for good reasons, because it would definitely enhance our trade situation with China. Uh, but they should want it as well, because it's going to create a better environment for innovation there. Same thing with some of the markets we're trying to leverage open. You know, having those closed markets with a few state enterprises leads to monopolies that are not particularly efficient, not serving people. So I think you've got a middle class and an intellectual group there that are very much open to ideas about economic reform uh, and that in some ways we're pushing on an open door uh, when we push for some of these market access and IPR things. Do you think if if we do have a change of administration here in Washington uh, early next year, that pursuing a new version of the Trans-Pacific Partnership is something that would have a salutary impact on U.S.-Chinese relations, or would that be a, just another problem in the relationship? So the original grouping of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, including us, did not include China. And, you know, I supported the basic idea of trying to develop a high quality agreement addressing new issues like cross-border data, IPR protection, state enterprises. Uh, so I do think it's in the US interest to get back in. Uh, and it wasn't a perfect agreement, so we could try to negotiate some improvements. And then the key thing would be getting other countries, big countries like South Korea, Indonesia. You know, I think we could really make that the foundation for Asia-Pacific trade in the 21st century, and then China will have to reform in that direction and eventually join, or else it's going to be increasingly left out. I think that's a smart strategy for the U.S., and unfortunately, right now we're doing the opposite. You know, we pulled out of that TPP. Meanwhile, the Chinese are promoting their own somewhat shallow trade agreement around Asia Pacific. So we're the ones at risk of being left out while China's building a pretty significant trade block, including a lot of our allies, by the way. This complicated world we live in, because their Chinese agreement includes Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore. These are all classic American allies, but they want to have open trade and investment in Asia, including with China. Uh, and we either get into that game or we're just going to be left behind. From here in Washington, it can sometimes appear that China, uh, China doesn't do a great job of impressing its its neighbors and potential allies with the way it behaves. That it seems to be 
it's it's kind of abrupt and authoritarian nature pushes potential allies away. Is that is that what you see, or do you think that there's maybe something going on that we can't perceive here in the West, where this this methodology China has of pushing capital out, being having a more authoritarian approach to capitalism than we do, is actually attracting uh, other countries to to kind of bandwagon along behind it? Well, I think your instinct is right. I think their diplomacy is largely failing. You know, we've had two incidents in relatively modern times where they insulted Singapore at one meeting and then recently insulting Australia, basically saying, you know, we're big, you're small, as if somehow that should make different rules. You know, I I think a remarkable thing about the United States is the way that we led in setting up those Bretton Woods institutions and the global system at the end of World War II. And we expected ourselves to follow the same rules as all these other countries. Everybody was small after World War II compared to the United States. So I think China has been throwing its weight around diplomatically and making enemies. And, and with their money, you know, they can buy some small friends like Cambodia and Laos. Uh, but I don't think it impresses in Indonesia. Singapore is a modest population, but it's actually a pretty big economy because it's so wealthy. Australia is medium power. South Korea, they bullied South Korea a few years ago around missile defense. I don't see that any of that has worked for the Chinese. Uh, So in terms of soft power, the whole field is open for the United States to come back and rebuild our soft power by showing that our democracy can work, can take care of the COVID pandemic, can deal with various problems, et cetera. Right now, we've lost soft power all around the world, but China hasn't picked up because they've been pretty inept in their diplomacy. Let me ask you a couple more kind of classic questions of of things that I've been wondering about for for way too long. One is the potential for a Chinese economic bubble. They've been growing at at a pretty high rate for decades. And with the exception of the pandemic and the immediate aftermath, it seems like that's basically still happening. And there's, there's a, behind all that, there's a lot of government lending to state-owned enterprises. You can't help but think that there's got to be huge inefficiencies in the financial system that at some point could collapse and have real-world consequences. What's, what's your assessment of a potential bubble in China? Well, there definitely are serious weaknesses in their financial system, you know, which is not allocating capital very well. As you say, there's a lot of lending from state-owned banks going to state-owned enterprises. You know, they're not particularly innovative or productive. And overall, debt level in the economy is building up. My own view is that the, the risk of a classic financial crisis is rather low because they've got high domestic savings, People do not have a lot of different opportunities. They put those into the banks. So they've got a lot of people's money to play around with. And as long as they maintain their capital controls and keep that money in China, they can probably prevent a financial crisis. But there are a lot of reasons why economies tend to slow down as they develop. Internal reasons in China, demographics, for example, the population's aging very quickly. And now, frankly, it looks like we're probably not going to have a very conducive world environment for economic growth, uh, for trade coming up over the next decade or so. So what I argue to Chinese policymakers and economists is that it's more important than ever for them to reform their financial system and get an efficient allocation of capital 
first to reduce those risks. I mean, I said I don't expect a crisis, but, but the risk is there. Uh, and then more importantly, as they slow down, if they can allocate capital more efficiently, that will offset the downward trend a little bit. You know, they're not going to grow at 10% anymore. That's impossible. Uh, but they could slow down very dramatically to more like three or four, or they could continue to grow in the five to 6% range. And over a decade or so, that's going to make a huge difference for living standards. So if they really want people's lives to get better, they need financial reform as one of the top two or three reforms for the economy. The other, uh, the other thing that, that I, I can't help but um, think has to be a concern with China is the amount of centralized decision-making in the economy. It seems like there, there is a very um, heavy-handed approach from government in what we think of as the private sector. They're creating massive state-owned enterprises. They're empowering certain companies over others. It seems like that's in a, in a free market system, in a global economy that has massive pressures from real markets, that that is in the long run just a bad way to run an economy. At some point, is China going to have to loosen up its governmental control of what's going on in the country and let countries be real free actors in the market? As I see it, it's a very dualistic place right now. So what you're describing is a pretty accurate description of very large firms. You know, so the centrally owned state enterprises are very large firms. There's no question about that. And they've had a few private firms become real behemoths like Alibaba and Tencent. We can argue a little bit about whether Huawei is really a private firm or not, but they've got a few flagship firms that came out of the private sector. Clearly, the Communist Party intervenes in all of them. But I like to remember that the backbone of the economy is literally millions of medium-sized private enterprises. And there just simply aren't enough members of the Communist Party to be making all the decisions. And this is really the backbone of the economy is lots of medium-sized firms with two or 300 workers. Uh, And I think it's the dynamism in that private sector that's propelled China's success. So, Scholars argue about this a lot because it's often very hard to understand exactly what's happening in China. But if the state's running everything, then it kind of runs against some of our core thinking about economics because state-run economies have not done particularly well. So I actually think it's more of a dualistic economy, very dynamic, medium, private sector, but not necessarily including the flagship names you know about that we all know about. Uh, And then this this state-dominated state enterprise sector plus the top private firms. And I think the Chinese economy would do better if they would lighten up on that management or intervention for the big firms and basically privatize the state enterprises. There's no reason in the modern world for the government to be owning the kinds of enterprises that the Chinese open. So it's kind of a a struggle about, you know, what's going to win out. Certainly Xi Jinping has taken them more in the direction of central control. But there are still those millions of enterprises that I'm pretty sure the Communist Party is not making day-to-day business decisions in millions of enterprises. They're just, there aren't enough Communist Party members to do that. What's your take on the approach to China of the American business community? It's my, it's my sense as a political hack here inside the Beltway Swamp in Washington that 
the politics on China have changed. Both Republican part, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, much more highly critical of China than they used to be. And I think that the common denominator is that the U.S. business community is just taking a different approach to China. They're more concerned about intellectual property, rule of law issues, uh, the the theft of their their various assets and kind of unfair state-supported competition from China. And they're just not the cheerleaders for the vigorous economic relationship that they used to be. And that that's not going to go away anytime soon. What's what's your assessment of, of where the American business community is? Well, I think you just made a very good assessment. For a long time, the business community seemed willing to tolerate some of these distortions in China, things like weakness in intellectual property rights protection. And I make the distinction that the for you know for a long time American firms have had problems with this kind of issue. But if your you know competitor in China was in some sense uh, stealing your technology, they were using it in China. And so for many of these firms, I've heard this directly from from CEOs. For many of these firms, they're making a lot of money. The American firm is making a lot of money in China. And if their intellectual property were protected better, they'd make a little bit more. So, of course, they would like that, uh, but mostly they didn't really want to rock the boat. And to me, the main thing that's changed is now so many of those Chinese firms are going international. So it's one thing when you lose a little bit of your potential market in China, uh, but it's another thing when the Chinese firms start encroaching on your market around the world. And I think that's that's definitely what we've seen with uh, some of this expansion of firms like Huawei, and the Belt and Road Initiative is opening up opportunities for Chinese firms around the world. You've got firms that make uh, earth moving equipment, for example, that compete with the leading American and European firms, and they're having a lot of success now. So I think the business community has woken up and recognized that you know, they're competing with China all around the world, and that's made these issues or problems more important. And then plus, China is clearly growing up. So it's one thing to tolerate certain weaknesses when a country's fairly poor and developing. But now that China is the biggest trading nation in the world, it's hard to be sympathetic to some of these weaknesses. Now, the last thing I would say on this is I've been in quite a few meetings with business executives over the last year or so, and they're not happy with the Trump policies and in particular tariffs. So they may have helped unleash this trade war with China, but they're not really happy with the way it's playing out. They would like to see the U.S. government leverage open more markets in China and deal with things like intellectual property rights theft, uh, but they do want to trade with China. So they're not happy uh, that we seem to be heading in a direction where quite a few officials in Washington talk cavalierly about decoupling from the Chinese economy. So I don't I think there are too many business executives who want to decouple from the Chinese economy. Great segue, because I was just going to ask you about, about this whole decoupling idea. There are plenty of politicians in both parties who are, who are talking about exactly that, separating the U.S. economy from the Chinese economy. And if not, some of them are talking about in, in its entirety, but I would say a few more are talking about sector by sector. And then some, perhaps the, uh, the smarter take would be in, the, in sectors critical to national security. Is any of that remotely plausible or is that just like tariffs, a policy solution that's not really going to result in the thing that you think it will? It's not going to lead to as much change as many people think. Uh, you know, our economies are pretty deeply integrated 
and, and I think perhaps it's more accurate to say U.S. and China are both integrated into the same global system. So it's very hard to decouple. Uh, and a lot of our allies have much more trade with China than they have with the U.S. They don't want to decouple. Now, there will be a certain amount of decoupling in the technology realm. I think there are legitimate national security issues. The U.S. has woken up. Uh, you will definitely see uh, more trade and investment areas restricted. And the question is, can we keep that relatively constrained to national security areas? Are we going to start defining everything as national security? You know, for the moment, I mean, all our tariffs at the moment are justified under national security grounds. So, you know, we have a tariff on washing machines. So somehow protecting the washing machine sector is a national security issue. So frankly, that's nonsense. So can we, you know, rein that in uh, and de define a modest number of subsectors where there are national security issues and otherwise have open trade and investment with China. That would be the best outcome in this current environment. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of talk in Washington about including all kinds of things in national security, like all the medical equipment and masks, protective gear, et cetera. You know, this, this is not a particularly rational approach to dealing with the, the the next pandemic in the future, the rational thing is for us to build up some stockpiles, you know, not to require that everything be produced in the U.S. because that's going to end up being very expensive and it's going to be hurting a lot of our trading partners around the world. Last question, David. How how worried are you about the the rhetorical tone in Washington kind of pointed towards an eventual military conflict between the U.S. and China, whether it's over Taiwan or islands associated with Taiwan or, or even islands associated with Japan or Guam or uh, Palau or something similar that at some point, you know, our, our kind of baseline national interests come into direct conflict with China's and, and something very bad happens. How, how concerned are you about that? So I think the probability of military conflict is, is fairly low for the next 10 years or so. Uh, but the danger of this cavalier talk is it, you know, it just takes one mistake to escalate into something much more serious. Uh, so I would be very worried about some kind of mistake, ships colliding in the South China Sea or aircraft. And then we used to have pretty good lines of communication politically, but also military to military, a lot of that's breaking down. So if we're not communicating back and forth between China and the U.S., then if there is some kind of accident, it could escalate into something more serious. So I, I would be very worried about this deterioration of overall relations and the risks that it creates. I don't think anybody's deliberately going to go into a war situation because that's really going to be a disaster. Uh, but either side could end up backing into a war situation. And you know, that, that, that should be one of our highest priorities is avoiding fighting a war with a you know, big, heavily armed country like China. We, we ought to be able to work out issues without resorting to military conflict. Amen. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason Matt Sec. 
If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.